Amen. Amen. It's good to be together. It's good to sing together. If you have a copy of God's Word, find the book of Acts. We have been over the last several weeks to start our new year looking at just some, some scenes through the book of Acts and learning about why church matters. That's been sort of the title of the series, and not just why the church matters, but also talking about some matters in the church. Two weeks ago, we talked about the mission of the church. What does the local church exist to do and to accomplish? Last week, friends, we were blessed. We talked about prayer in the church, and we had our prayer and praise Sunday last week, which was just great to spend most of our time just seeking God's face as a church together. And this week, we're going to talk about leadership in the church. And in particular, we're going to talk about a subject that gets everybody very excited, the subject of deacons. The subject of deacons. I know, just the mention of the word. You've got a variety of images. If you grew up in church, you might have a bad taste in your mouth right about now. Or you may have been, I went this week, and, and it's true, you can Google Baptist deacon jokes and get some good ones in there, right? There's, it's kind of sad in one sense that there's so many punchlines. I believe me, if you were to sit in a group of pastors, the subject of deacons typically comes up, particularly if they are a deacon-led church. Let me just tell you some interesting stories. Uh, the, I will leave out uh, the names to protect the innocent, right? There was a church, I was once talking uh, to the pastor and to the leadership there, and they once told me that, yes, they had four deacons, but only two of them had been to church in the last year. When asked one pastor if he'd rather go to a deacon's meeting or to get a root canal, he had the dentist on speed dial. He would much rather go get the root canal. And friends, that really is a shame because I think part of the reason that is is churches have misunderstood the role of pastor and deacon. They've misunderstood how we are to structure leadership in the church and how they've structured it has been more akin to their traditions and preferences rather than to the word of God. See, the word of God is sufficient for our life and our practice, and that includes life and practice in the church. Missionary Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China, famously said this, I love this, God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And let me say, I think oftentimes the reverse is what we experience. We try to do our work our way and then wonder why we're limited to our supply. Could it be that we've misunderstood the roles of elder and deacon, of pastor and deacon? Could it be that we've not structured our church in God's way so so many have missed God's supply and God's blessing and God's vision for their local church. And I want us just regularly, we try to take time to look at what does the Bible say about how our church is to function, how it's to be run. And the place I want us to camp out, one of a few places, is Acts chapter 6. Because Acts chapter 6 is one of the first places the early church installs leadership beyond the apostles. I don't know if you've looked around here today, but the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter are not here. They've graduated onto glory, right? So how is the church to be, what, what, what does leadership in the church look like? And Acts 6 is considered universally to be one of the first instances where we see uh, leadership put into the Bible, where we see different roles in the church put in, and they particularly set aside the role of deacon in 
the Bible. That's where they set it aside, and it was put in order to respond to a problem in the early church. Our outline this morning is simple. We're going to see the problem, the solution, and underneath the solution we've got several questions about the role of servants, of deacons in the church, and then the outcome. The problem, the solution, and the outcome. So let's start with the problem. In Acts 6, we get introduced to the problem, which was ineffective distribution. Ineffective distribution. Up to this point in the book of Acts, there have really been two threats to the church, this new, thriving, spirit-filled people. First, on the heels of God pouring out his spirit and power, the church began to experience persecution from both the Jewish religious leaders and the Gentile government officials. Peter and the apostles were thrown into jail and threatened to stop speaking about this Jesus. And while we're fortunate that we're free to gather here today without getting thrown into jail, social pressures still remain. There's still pressure on us from the world around us to just back off of our faith, to back off of our convictions, to not take this Jesus thing so serious. And this threat remains, yet the early church persevered and boldly pressed on, even in the face of persecution. The second threat to the newly thriving church was moral corruption. Acts chapter 5 tells us of a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who kept back money that they had pledged to the church uh, in order to, that, that they had kept back this money, this ple- the, the pledge that they made, and it showed that they lacked integrity. The issue wasn't that they needed the money. It was sort of like they were telling the IRS one thing and in real life doing another thing, right? They were telling everybody, look, we gave all of this, but really we just kind of stuck it in our back pocket. It was a question of integrity. And so the church was threatened to look and act just like the world around it. And when the church begins to act like the world, it will receive the world's blessing and not the blessing of God. And in Acts chapter 6, we see the third and fourth threat to the young church. Not persecution, not moral corruption, but the threats of division and distraction. The threats of division and distraction. In one sense, these are distinct realities, but ultimately they share the same root. A church that is distracted is a church that is divided, and a church that is divided is a church that is distracted. Before we can really see the value of deacons in the life of the early church, we had to see the problem that was put in place. Let's look at Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Keep in mind, the church now numbered over 5,000 people in Jerusalem had recently joined the church. Friends, this was the first mega church right here in the Bible. And we see this, Acts 6, verse 1. Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The problem was an ineffective distribution ministry. There were widows being overlooked, specifically the Hellenist widows. Now, let's see a principle here before we even go any further. The principle is this. With great growth comes great temptation to distraction. Anytime a church is beginning to grow and take next steps and thrive and do well, friends, there are temptations to be distracted from the mission. 
And the apostles who are leading the church at this point came. They, were, they had a temptation toward distraction in the form of a complaint, in the form of disunity. And parents here understand distractions are not always a bad thing. You can be tempted to be distracted by a good thing. The concern for these widows and the daily distribution was important, but it wasn't something the apostles could handle on their own. They were busy preaching to these thousands of people. They'd had literally 5,000 people baptized and joined their church basically overnight. They were helping to lead them in their walk of faith. Would they stop preaching and building up in order to go and meet this need? There just isn't enough time in the day. And on top of that, the problem doesn't seem to be as simple as the system is broken. They can't get the food to the widows. No, like so many problems in life, the problem appeared to be a people problem. The complaint, it says, arose from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem. There were lots of Jews who were dispersed outside of Jerusalem. They primarily spoke Greek, and these people had likely make the, made the pilgrimage in on the day of Pentecost, had encountered Jesus during Peter's sermon, and just had never left, picked up their lives, and were following after this new church, and that included many widows. And the Hebrews here are likely the local Jerusalem Jews who would have spoke Hebrew. And so like anything, you see the locals and the transplants, and they're not getting along. Different ideas on how things were to look, and whether due to language, remember they're speaking different languages whether due to absent-mindedness, whether due to discrimination, whatever it is, these Hellenist widows had no home, and now we're struggling with no food. That's the problem in the background. God's people had a specific need, and they needed specific care because a specific problem had arose. Could the apostles drop everything in order to solve the problem? Well, no, they didn't need it. If they were going to be busy delivering food specifically to the Hellenists, they weren't going to have time to do all the other things that they needed to do. But they did come up with a solution, and it's probably not one that we're expecting. To the problem of ineffective distribution, they second brought the solution to select deacons. Select deacons. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick up from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. These are the earliest form of what we see would become deacons in the New Testament church. And in the history of the church, they were selected to solve a problem and to care for members in need. And in these short verses, we see four big questions about deacons that get answered. 
for us. The first question is this, what do deacons do? What do deacons do? And if you've ever grown up in church, your answer might be not much. <laughs> but the problem is that's certainly not the biblical answer to that question. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, they called a members meeting, right? And said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They give the picture of being a waiter, of caring and serving at tables. In other words, the apostles are saying, we want to be effective in our ministry, preaching this Jesus who we have seen with our own eyes, preaching the word of God. We need to delegate some responsibility outside of ourselves. And they basically ask the question, how can we cook and prepare spiritual meals and be expected to, to wait the spiritual tables? We need deacons to serve. In fact, that's what the word means, is servants. Friends, deacons are not meant to be the primary leaders and decision makers over the body of Christ. That's reserved for elders and pastors. Biblically speaking, there's really only three leadership positions when you get down to what the Bible prescribes for a church to have. You are an elder, you are a deacon, or you are a member. Those are the three options, and those all have their own responsibilities and their own pieces with them. And while it's a different sermon to prove that to you, let me give you one passage. Uh, the opening to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Look what Paul says here. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So he says, hey, saints in Philippi, there's the members of the church with the overseers. You'll come to find as you read the New Testament that the office of elder has several terms attached to it. Think of the way that the president of the United States can be called the president. He can be called the commander-in-chief. He can be called by a number of different titles, yet refer to one office. You'll see the Bible interchangeably talk about overseers, elders, pastors, kind of all together in a variety of ways. And then you have deacons. And while the apostles are serving in the role of overseer in the church in Jerusalem, they needed deacons to come alongside to help serve various needs in the body. Deacons don't exist to sit on a board and make the pastor's life heck or to make sure he doesn't come in and change nothing that might be going on in the body of Christ. No, they are meant to be servants in the church. He said they described them as waiting tables, meeting needs, being hands and feet. And Paul actually writes the book of 1 Timothy to tell Timothy a little bit of the differences and similarities between elders and deacons. Look over, hold your place in Acts 6. And look over at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and look at the comparison. There's both things that are similar and things that are different here. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. There's the requirements for an overseer. Now let's see what he has to say about deacons. Verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. If you notice those, there's a lot of similarities in character. That's important to see. We're going to look at that in a second. But each position serves different competencies. Notice the overseers that um, says must be able to teach and must manage their home well because they must manage the church well. If you could sum up their role, it would be to, pre to teach and to lead, or at least to oversee the teaching and to lead. Deacons are not said to be able to teach. That doesn't mean they're ignorant, right? Hopefully not, right? They're to hold to the faith with a good conscience, but rather they are to serve. Verse 13 makes this clear. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons exist to serve, to fix whether they're going to fix the problem themselves or by managing and organizing a system to ensure everyone is served. Deacons don't exist to sit above the pastors and elders as they teach, but rather to be the hands and feet on behalf of them to serve various needs. And when these two exist and are working together, people are well fed by the preaching and they're well served by the deacons. It keeps the, the leadership from being burnt out because it evenly distributes serve need. What do deacons do? They serve helping to meet tangible needs in the body of Christ. The second question, who should be a deacon? Who should be a deacon? In some churches, it's just the guy who's been there the longest. Notice, that's not what the scripture would have us do at all. Acts chapter 6, verse 3, look at this. Therefore, brothers, pick up from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. Notice the three qualifications. Good repute, that means good reputation, full of the spirits, and full of wisdom. Being able to apply what they know, not just be full of head knowledge. In fact, character is one of the things even First Timothy put all and or most of the emphasis on. 
They're to be dignified, not double-tongued. They're not to be addicted to much wine or greedy for dishonest gain. They're to be dignified, not slanderers. They're to be faithful in their marriages and in their households. In other words, we need to see that to be a faithful servant in the church, you must first be a faithful servant of its king. In order to be a faithful servant in the church, you've got to be a faithful servant of Jesus. And what a church should look for in its leadership is someone they can hold up as an example. Not just the guy who's the most gifted, gives the most money, or who's been there the longest. They should hold up folks that they say, hey, follow them as they follow Christ. Look at their example and their way of life. Have people who talk the talk and walk the walk. And there is an important issue as we think about deacons in the church. It's a question about, hey, are deacons limited to men? Can only men serve as deacons in the local body? You'll actually find various answers to this across uh, church history. It's funny. You all know I love me some Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had deaconesses in his church in London back in the day. In Acts chapter 6, we see that they chose only men. But if you look other places in the New Testament and throughout the history of the church, there were women serving as deaconesses in the body of Christ. Let me show you something interesting. that You can take a little nerd's side journey with me. 1 Timothy 3.11. Their wives, there's a Greek word there that is gynekainos, gynekainos, if you think about it, ladies, gynecologist, that's where they get the word from, gyna, there it is, it means woman, right? Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. It's interesting, they put a qualification on deacons' wives, but you notice they didn't say anything in 1 Timothy 3 about an elder's wife. They didn't put any qualifications there at all. So I'm actually going to say, I'm not sure the ESV gets you the best translation of what Paul's trying to communicate. I love me the ESV. I preach out of the ESV, but there are other options here. Let me, again, give you some nerdy background. You can take this. You can do some research on this later if you want. But if you look in the original text, the word there is nowhere to be found. That's an insertion into the text. The word we just saw in 1 Timothy 3.11, translated wives, appears nine other times in 1 Timothy, and most of the time means women generally, not wives in particularly. And I'm going to show you that, because five of the nine uses appear just a chapter back in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look there, if you get a second, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I've underlined each of the uses there where that word appears, and notice what it's translated. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve... And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. If you want to know what that means, you can come back another Sunday. We can talk about that uh, another day, or y'all can go home and y'all can fight about it at lunch if you want to have that discussion. But Paul is definitely telling us here that, hey, there's, there, there's particular roles for people in the church, but I want us to see, most importantly, 
that that word translated wives in 1 Timothy 3.11 is translated women just about everywhere else in, in 1 Timothy. The only places where it's not, let me show you those. In chapter 3, as it relates to elders and deacons, it says this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Then of deacons, it says this, 1 Timothy 3.12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households. Well, and a literal way you could translate this phrase is that they are to be one woman men. They're to have eyes for one woman and be faithful to the woman that's in front of them and to give their attention and affection and commitment and faithfulness to her. But it's clear that that's referring to the wife of a husband. There's really not other options there. And then you'll see the last use, 1 Timothy 5, 9, when it speaks of widows, particularly, hey, what widows should the church enroll into its widow care program? It says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So there again, I think it's clear that a wife, obviously, it's in connection with her husband. But notice, I say all this to say this, the word is the translated wife there. I think would be better translated to refer to women in general. And in fact, three translations, popular translations, translate it this way. The NIV, the NASB, or the New American Standard Bible, and the LSB basically say this. In the same way, the women who serve as deacons are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talk, and trustworthy in everything. So he lays out a place women to serve as deacons in the local church. And I think this helps us make sense out of a lady named Phoebe that we meet in the book of Romans. Let me introduce you to her. We meet Miss Phoebe here. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, the word means deacon of the church that is in Sincrea. So all that to answer the question, who can be deacons, men or women who are qualified by a faithful walk with Jesus? Good repute, good reputation, full of the Spirit. They have wisdom. Y'all know the difference between wisdom, right? But some people have a lot of book smarts but can't do nothing with it. Wisdom means they're actually able to go do stuff, be in action, care for the needs of others. And when deacons are deaconing as they ought, it makes all the difference. Let's look at the third question. Why do deacons exist? Why do deacons exist? Remember, they exist to serve the church and to support the elders. When they are meeting needs, like an ineffective distribution, it allows elders and leadership to focus on their role. Look back at Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Look at this, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of wisdom and full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word so that they can care for their responsibilities to make sure the church is prayed for and being taught as it ought. Anything outside of prayer and the ministry of the word, I believe, can fall under deacon ministry. Maybe some folks need to be visit, visited, and it's a busy week, and the pastor can't get there, 
That's a place where deacons can step in and serve. Maybe there's a, a need for food for someone in the congregation. Someone can step up and care for that particular role. Maybe there's some follow-up that needs to be done with some folks. There's some care that can be done there. Maybe we need help preparing for a baptism of the Lord's Supper. There's so much that can fall under the care and the role of deacons in the church. There's countless ways that they can serve in the body of Christ. And let me tell you, we've already got people in this church who are doing the role of deacon. They just don't have the title yet. They don't have the title. And by that, they're kind of curious as to, am I able to do this unhindered and with the full blessing of the, of, of the whole church? Or am I overstepping? What's that role look like? The Bible tells us that the elders care for the spiritual health and direction of the church while deacons exist to help meet the physical needs and fill in some of the details. Both are needed for a church to run effectively, and without them, it can be a disaster. Let me give you an example I think everybody would understand. Everybody has been to a restaurant that might have had great food but terrible service. You need a good cook in the kitchen, and you need a great wait staff. Some of y'all been to places I know that had great service and terrible food. <laughs> Friends, you need both in order to care well. Or consider in the school system. You all understand this, who work in the school system. You can't just hire teachers. As great as it is to have teachers, someone's got to be answering the phones. Someone's got to be caring for the IT. Someone's got to be making the kiddos lunch. Somebody's got to be fixing the broken urinal. Somebody's got to be planning the after-school stuff. If all of that were placed on the teachers, somebody's got to be driving the bus, right? You have, you have to have folks doing a variety of roles for the whole thing to run. And the church is meant to be run through the word prayer and oversight of elders and served by deacons. You might say it this way. God's vision for the local church is Jesus ruled, elder led, deacon served, and member engaged. You might say it this way. Jesus ruled, elder led, deacon served, and membered engaged. Ministry is under Jesus, led by the elders, served by the deacons, and carried out by the membership of the body of Christ. Because hear me, just because a church has leaders doesn't take the responsibility off of the members to be engaged in ministry. It doesn't absolve the congregation of responsibility. Rather, it enables God's people to step up and do ministry. Let's look at the final question. Who chooses deacons? Who chooses deacons? Ultimately, friends, we read in Acts 6, the whole church, every member is responsible for its leadership. Both the deacons and the elders who sit over them. The church, the leadership of the church is the church's responsibility. The buck stops with the butts in the seats. Acts chapter 6 says it this way, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Stephen will go on to be the first Christian martyr. The first Christian martyr was a deacon. Crazy enough, right? And Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, they set them before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The whole body was pleased and they set these folks aside. And while the apostles were there to offer wisdom and insight, the whole church placed their hands on them, which did two things. It showed a unified front, 
It showed that this was a need everybody recognized that needed to be cared for and that these were the right people to care for the job. It's interesting that every single one of those folks has a Greek name and not a Hebrew name. So they're there to care for the Greek-speaking Hellenists because these folks are able to communicate and care for them. There was a problem, and the deacons were set aside to be the solution. Widows were being overlooked, so deacons were set aside to make sure every need of the body was met, and so the threat of distraction and division were defeated under the hands and feet of servants in the body of Christ. And I want us to see, and it's so important, that we need to see what happens when a church is functioning the way God would have it to function. When we have the God's work being done God's way, we do not lack God's supply. We've seen the problem, we've seen the solution, but most importantly, I want us to see the outcome, which is multiplying disciples. What happened when this early church was met with all of these needs that needed to be cared for? So they set aside folks to help care for them. The goal, the outcome was multiplying disciples. No longer distracted, the apostles could teach and lead. These men that they set aside began to serve and help to meet the needs of the body. The members took the word wherever they went. And then look what happened. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 And the word continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See this, friends. A church functioning God's way and doing God's work God's way will never lack God's supply. No matter what challenge will come its way, whether persecution, whether the temptation toward inward corruption, whether distraction or division, Jesus promises to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the question we must ask is, are we willing to do God's work God's way? Are we willing to be the church God would, cause us, would call us to be? Are we more concerned about not being a way we've seen the Bible abused, that we don't want to do what the Bible says? Are we more willing to to do things according to our traditions than we are according to the Word of God? Could it be, friends, that for so long leadership could have spent its time burnt out because it was trying to be both the chef and the waiter in the kitchen? Could it be that there are other physical hands and feet needs that could be met? Because God hasn't left problems without solutions, and he hasn't left a distracted and divided church without directions. At the bottom of your notes today, if you pick those up, there's just a short job description of what I think deacons in this body would look like if we were to get those and to set those aside. But all I want to ask you to do in light of Acts 6 today is to pray. To pray, to ask, God, would you have us, do we, do we see needs in this body that need to be met, that can't possibly be handled by just one person? And can we set qualified men and women aside to do it, to be servants in this body, people who meet the qualifications and who have the competencies to serve in this role. 
I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions about how that looks, and I'll be at the door, and you can talk to me throughout the next couple weeks. There'll also be an opportunity to nominate some folks to help meet some of these needs, and I'd love to hear from you about places where there might be Hellenist widows, so to speak, being overlooked in our body, things that aren't being done, that need to get done, that need hands and feet to do. But let me close here because being a deacon is not a glamorous job. Waiting tables is not a glamorous job. And often their role is behind the scenes, but that doesn't make it any less glorious. Let me tell you this. Jesus is called the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor of this church. I don't know if you heard that. That's not me. I'm the under-shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor of this church and of every church. But did you know Jesus is also the deacon of this church? Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible says Jesus came not to be deaconed, but to be a deacon and to give his life as a ransom for us. Consider this, the God of the universe came to earth and he could have come as a king, as a pope, as a president, as some major figure, but he came as a lowly servant. And he got so low that he even went to die on a cross bearing the punishment of death for sins that he did not commit, taking your burdens upon his shoulders because he loves you. Jesus had nails in his hands and his feet, but he had you on his mind and on his heart. And as we read at the beginning of the service, he didn't stay dead. But because he humbled himself to, to, to obedience to death, he was exalted into the highest place and stands today as king of kings and lord of lords over all. And Jesus would tell you and model for you that the way up is always the way down. That you want to be exalted, he says, be humble. You want to know the way to making an impact? Be a servant. And the way we all must come to Jesus and receive eternal life is as a servant receiving and humble faith taking what he has done on our behalf. Today, there are many here who have never made a public commitment to Jesus. And I ask you today to do that. We are called to, all of us are called in one sense or another to be his servants and to be his servants means to declare to the world that we are his and he is our king. Today, if you need to make that commitment, you can do that right where you are. You can come down front. You can talk to me at the door. But Jesus stands ready to receive you. Anyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And once we're saved, the Bible says all of us are called to serve as his bond servants, as his servants, as his representatives, and as his witnesses in the world. And so may God make us good and faithful servants in his kingdom. Let's stand and let's pray and let's respond to God's word together.
Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us your word and told us how you would have your church to function. You've not left it up to our imaginations. You've not left us to do your work our way. But you've promised that if we do your work your way, it will never lack your supply. So God, I pray that you would help us to consider what your word would have to say, that you could right now be prompting in people who see needs in our body to step up and to take on a role to do it and to serve. With great growth, as we're seeing here, comes great potential for distraction and division. And the answer for distraction and division, the Bible says, is servants to give of their time and of their life to serve in a variety of areas. Lord, be raising up servants here and help us to ultimately recognize and worship the greatest servant of all, the one who laid down his life for his enemies, that they might be adopted as his sons and as his daughters. Jesus, we give you the glory, and we ask that as we respond to your word now, that you would have all of our affection and attention and hope. Lord, help us not to be a church distracted or divided, but united in one thing, proclaiming your word and your mission and building up your people to serve. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.